I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look to multiple sources to help us to make sense of the more confusing bits of scripture. Once again, Israel is on the move. After 38 years of sitting in one place, the command has come down from on high. Time to go. Time to take the land that God has promised. Time to pick up your weapons and fight. Now, usually command of this sort would cause all sorts of celebration. The day has finally come. The land is right there before us. But there's a problem. The place that Israel needs to get to in order to begin the conquest is on the other side of Edom, and Edom will not let them pass. Normally, the trip from Kadesh to Shittim is around 100 miles when traveling directly, but they are prevented from going to war with Edom. They have to, instead, go around Edom. And that means an extra 300 miles added to the trip. Israel has to travel back to the Red Sea before looping around on the east side of Edom and traveling back up to the east side of the Jordan. Suddenly, the promise that was right in front of them It seems so far away again. It was right there. The place where they were camped in Kadesh was right on the southern border of the land. But now the cloud is leading them away. And then another setback. The high priest, Aaron, the brother of Moses, the chosen one of Hashem, the man whose rod blossomed with almonds. Aaron dies. Now they have a new high priest, an untested high priest. What if Hashem won't answer this new high priest? What if he dies the first time that he steps into the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement? And then the news comes. Moses will not be accompanying you into this land. This man who has parted the sea and led you and your parents out of slavery and through the wilderness for the last forty years. This mainstay of strength and honor and power, he will die before he reaches the land, just as their parents had died, and for the same reason. Suddenly, over a short period of time, the strength that had been building in the wilderness, the expectations of how this was going to go, every imagining of the easy and immediate conquests are dashed. The visions of marching in strength behind this man who had proven over time to be a great leader, and behind his brother who had proven to be a great high priest. Suddenly there is a shadow over the whole process. Everything that could go wrong is going wrong. And that's where this Parsha begins. Everything is going wrong. And then as this chapter opens, it descends even further. But in this initial story of chapter 21, we catch a glimpse of this new Israel. The Israel that is learning, but they're not fully there yet. There's still a long journey ahead of them, 
So let's open up to Numbers 21 and read the spark of light that is beginning to shine in the darkness of the wilderness experience. Numbers chapter 21 And the sovereign of Arad, the Canaanite, who dwelt in the south, heard that Israel was coming on the way to Ataharim. And he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Then Israel made a vow to Hashem and said, If you deliver this people into my hand indeed, then I shall put their cities under the ban. And Hashem listened to the voice of Israel and gave up the Canaanites, and they put them and their cities under the ban. So the name of the place was called Hormah. And they departed from Mount Hor by the way of the Sea of Reeds to go around to the land of Edom. But the being of the people grew impatient because of the way. And the people spoke against Elohim and against Moshe. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our being loathes this light bread. And Hashem sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Then the people came to Moshe and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against Hashem and against you. Pray to Hashem to take away the serpents from us. So Moshe prayed on behalf of the people. And Hashem said to Moshe, Make a fiery serpent, and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moshe made a bronze serpent, and put it on a pole, and it came to be if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. And the children of Israel set out and camped at Obot, and they departed from Obot and camped at Iyeh Ha'avarim, in the wilderness, which is the east of Moab, toward the sunrise. From there they set out and camped at the Wadi Zared, and from there they set out and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness, and that extends from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Therefore it is said of the book in the battles of Hashem, Waheb and Sufa, the Wadi Arnon, and the slope of the Wadi that turns aside to the dwelling of Ar, and lies on the border of Moab. And from there on to Be'er, which is the well where Adonai said to Moshe, Gather the people and let me give them water. Israel then sang this song, Spring up, O well, sing to it. A well the leaders sank with the nobles of the peoples, dug with their staves by the word of the inscriber. Then from the wilderness on to Matana, from Matana to Nachaliel, from Nachaliel to Bamot, from Bamot in the valley that is in the country of Moab, to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. And Israel sent messengers to Sichon, the king of the Amorites, saying, let us pass through your land. We shall not turn off into fields or vineyards, and shall not drink water from wells, but go by the king's highway until we have passed over your border. But Sichon would not allow Israel to pass through his border. So Sichon gathered all his people together, and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Yahatz, and he fought against Israel. And Israel struck him with the edge of the sword, and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Yabok, as far as the children of Ammon, from the border of the children of Ammon was strong. And Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, in Heshbon, and in all its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sichon, the king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, and had taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. That is why those who speak in the Proverbs say, Come to Heshbon, that the city of Sichon be built and established. For a fire went out from Heshbon, and a flame from the city of Sichon, it consumed Ar of Moab, the masters of the heights of the Arnon. Woe to you, Moab, you have perished. O people of Chemosh, he has given his sons as fugitives and his daughters into captivity to Sichon, the king of the Amorites. Then we shot them. Heshbon has perished as far as Divon, and we laid waste as far as Nophach, which reaches to Medeva.
So Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Moshe sent to spy out Yazer, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there, and turned and went up by the way to Bashan, and Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, to battle at Edrei. And Hashem said to Moshe, Do not fear him, for I have given him into your hand, with all his people in his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sichon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt at Heshbon. And they struck him and his sons and all his people until no remnant was left to him, and they took possession of his land. And the children of Israel set out and camped in the desert plains of Moab, beyond the Yarden of Yericho. The wilderness experience is a process that is supposed to bring out the most carnal instincts that exist in the human heart. Fear, lust, greed, power, pride, and more. And throughout the wilderness journey, we have seen each of these baser desires rear their head among the children of Israel. We have seen them fail over and over and over again. And all too often, we look on from the outside and we simply shake our heads at these ancient backwards people and the failures that have beset them. And then we look to Yeshua as he faced these same temptations and point out how he did not fail once in his wilderness journey. And we put a smile on our face and imagine that if we had been faced with the same temptations, after having seen what they had seen and experienced what they had experienced, then we would not have failed. And in elevating ourselves in this way, we find ourselves exhibiting the failure of pride, thinking too highly of ourselves. Because the fact is that we have all failed in more than one of these areas and most of us have never had to do without an easy source of food or water. And if you have failed without even lacking the bare necessities, then how can you put yourself on a pedestal and state that you are better than those whose entire lives have been put into upheaval and turmoil? The fact is that the story of Yeshua in the wilderness does little to help us with our own struggles, except to help us to identify the areas that were likely to be tested and to reveal the ways to overcome those tests is by knowing the Word of God. But the story of Yeshua does not provide a picture of failure. He didn't, and we do. His story does not provide a picture of the slow growth in various areas that we all experience, the day-to-day, year-to-year plot of learning and growing and doing better the next time around. The story of Yeshua is a story of what can be with the perfect faith and without a sin nature. But none of us are Yeshua. We are sinful. We are fallen. And so our experience in the wilderness much more closely resembles the experience of Israel here in the book of Numbers. Now, as I pointed out, Israel is in the last year of their journey. Aaron died on the first day of the fifth month of the fortieth year, and Israel mourned for him for thirty days. That leaves six months until the conquest. Six months and over four hundred miles, and a whole slew of challenges yet before them. And while Israel is camped at Mount Hor, presumably while they're still mourning the death of their high priest, a king of Canaan heard that Israel was on the move. And the path that they were taking was not reported to him correctly, it seems. He assumed that Israel would go through Edom and pass by Atarim, but we know that they weren't. This path had been forbidden to them, lest it lead to war with Edom. And so this king, with some bad intel, sends troops and attacks Israel, and in the fight, some of the Israelites were taken captive, and he led them to Canaan as slaves. Because that is what you do when you take captives in the ancient Near East. 
And once again, just another thing is going wrong. But this time, this time Israel takes action. And they've learned an important lesson. For the first time in the history of Israel since they've left Egypt, Israel approaches God with an offer. They don't cry out. They don't quail in fear. They don't even seek to feed their desires. Their only hope and their sole goal is to free their brothers from bondage. And so they make a vow to Hashem. We are going to take up arms. Our hope is to free our brothers from this enemy. If you give us the victory, we will not take anything that is theirs. Rather, we will dedicate all that they have to you, to Hashem. And this is significant. Israel is fed up with being the victim of their circumstances. And now they have an enemy that they can fight. And so they do. The very first battle of the conquest. The very first battle in the land. It was not to defeat giants. It was not to take the land or even to plunder those who lived there. The first battle in Canaan did not happen at Jericho. It happened here with the king of Arad. And in this first battle, Israel tastes victory for the first time. A win. A win after so many losses. And a glimpse of light makes its way into their hearts. We can do this. We can take this land. Despite all these things going wrong, Hashem is with us. And in verse 4, Israel begins their journey in earnest. Six months from the conquest, the winter months at that, and a long way yet to travel. And so they turn their backs on the land of promise, and they head back to the sea that their fathers passed through so long ago. Now when you find yourself in the wilderness and you begin to grow, you will eventually begin to have victories over your baser desires. Victories in fighting for the kingdom of God. But as is so common with humans, those initial victories, they don't last long. I mean, you just won, but nothing seems to have changed. There's still so long to go, and the promise seems as far off as ever, even further because every step seems to be taking you in the opposite direction. Every moment that passes, the promises of God seem even more and more impossible. You're still eating this diet, and I don't care how much you might like a thing or how good it is, 40 years of having the same thing day in and day out would cause you to grumble as well. And in verse 4, the being of the people grew impatient because of the way. And they grumbled. They just experienced a victory, but a few days on the road going the wrong way, and a long road still ahead, and the same food and in a dry land without water. Every step exacerbates the irritation. Every step is a frustration. Every bite is a dull drudgery. And those same old accusations come out once again. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no real food. There's no water to sustain. This bread that we get from heaven and that we've eaten every day of our lives for the past 40 years, we've grown to loathe it. And the apple sure didn't fall far from the tree. The second generation is not very far from the first. They're making the same accusations. Your intentions are evil, God. 
You're incapable of sustaining us out here. The sustenance that you have provided, we no longer count it as food. You're not caring for us as we think you should, and we suspect that you're leading us to our death. And it is this complaining, groaning as the parents did, that precipitates a response. And this response is one of the more confounding episodes in all of the Bible. Now, I've been in conversation with Jews before and had them accuse me of idolatry because I look to Yeshua as the sacrifice on the cross as my means of salvation. But then when I point to this episode in the book of Numbers and ask them how this episode is any different, they ignore the question. But once in a while, (laughs) just once, the response came. Yeah, we kind of wish that story wasn't there. The story is confusing because it looks a lot like idolatry. In fact, the serpent on the pole that was created here does become an idol in Israel. 2 Kings 18, 1-4 And it came to be in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, that his Kiahu, son of Ahaz, king in Judah, began to reign. He was twenty-five years old when he began to reign, and he reigned twenty-nine years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of Hashem, according to all that his father David did. He took away the high places, broke the pillars, and cut down the Asherah. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent which Moses had made, for until those days the children of Israel burnt incense to it, and called it Nehushtan. Hezekiah is widely recognized as one of the most righteous kings in the history of Judah and Israel. He finally destroyed this serpent because Israel was worshiping it and praying to it by burning incense to it. Now I find it likely that they were praying to this bronze pole for healing and not praying to God. And this symbol of the serpent on the pole has become so deep-seated in the human, or at least in the Western consciousness, that it is this symbol that's used to denote places and people of healing, doctors and hospitals. And this brings up the thought, just how much are you looking to your doctor and your medicine to help you? And how much are you looking to God? Because God can heal through Western medicine. My wife would not be alive if it had not been for a skilled surgeon. But was it the surgeon that got the glory for the healing? Or was it God? I'm not trying to condemn Western medicine. I simply want you to consider, where are you putting your faith in the process? Is it in the medicine? Is it in the science? Is it in the men? Is it in the human knowledge or skill? Or is your faith in Hashem, the ultimate creator of all of these? Regardless of that, this episode, it confuses us. Why, oh why, would God first send serpents and then use a serpent on a pole as a means of healing from those serpents? Now, first we need to understand what the word shalach, or send, means in Hebrew. Now, this word can mean to send, but it can also mean to release. And the difference here is one that can mean all the difference. You see, if this word means to send, then it implies that there was an imperative command to go and to do. This is a king sending a messenger to another king. But this word can also mean to release. And if it means this, then there's no imperative command to do anything. But rather, a barrier is lowered 
and the thing that wants to go and do is allowed to go and do. This is the gate that's holding the bull back in the rodeo being opened to allow him out. So you see, determining the difference, it can change the story a bit. And in this case, it seems as if this verb, shalach, is used in that second matter. There were serpents that were being held back from Israel. And Hashem did not dispatch them with orders, but rather Hashem lowered the barrier that was holding them back. It seems as if Hashem had been actively working to keep that dangerous foe at bay. So when Israel begins to complain about God's intent to kill them here in the wilderness, Hashem says, have it your way. And he lowers the protection that had been keeping back. Yet another example of Hashem giving people what they want. And we'll see another example of this in the upcoming chapters, with Balaam's curses being held back, and yet the people lowering the barrier themselves to allow curses to overtake them. And it's because of this that some people die. And again in the story, we discover a bit of growth in the people of Israel. Before, when issues had arisen, the people turned to grumbling and accusing and pointing fingers at everyone else. This time, however, the people act differently. They go to Moses. They admit their failure and their sin. And they ask Moses to mediate for them, to speak to God on their behalf, and to seek a resolution for the problem. And it's that resolution that then causes all sorts of confusion. Make a serpent of bronze, a nachash nachoshet, and put it on a pole. All someone has to do is look at the serpent, if they have been bit, and they will be saved. Now this seems confusing enough, but we find out that Yeshua refers to the story and places himself in the role of the serpent that was lifted up and needs to be looked on for salvation in John chapter 3. We're all pretty familiar with John 3.16, but how familiar are you with the verses leading up to it? John 3.11-16 Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak what we know and witness what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If you had not believed when I spoke to you about earthly matters, how are you going to believe when I speak to you about the heavenly matters? And no one has gone up into the heaven except he who came down from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man has to be lifted up, so that whoever is believing in him should not perish, but possess everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique Son, so that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but possess everlasting life. Right there before one of the most quoted and iconic verses of all time, John 3.16, Yeshua compares himself to the serpent. Just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And in this lifting up, any who believe on him will not perish. Yeshua is comparing his own upcoming crucifixion to this episode with the serpents here in Numbers. What the heck is going on here? How are these two connected other than that they're both lifted up and looking on both preserves life? Is there perhaps a connection in the symbolism used here? What connection does Yeshua on a cross have to a serpent on a pole? What connection does Yeshua have? have to a serpent. 
Now, this is the question of the ages. It's a question that's been contemplated, argued over, and even ignored because it makes some uncomfortable. I myself, I've thought long and hard on what the connection between these two symbols might be, and I would like to throw my own interpretation into the mix that exists out there. So let's examine the symbols and see if we can uncover a meaning that spans both. The first symbol is the serpent, the deceiver, the enticer. We first see this character in Genesis chapter 3. We should all be familiar with this story. Adam and Eve in the garden when the serpent, uh, Nachash, approaches Eve and gets her to question the command of God. In essence, the serpent gets Eve to doubt the word of God and the character of God. To question if God was really who he said he was. And if we consider what's happening here in Numbers 21, we find that this is what is happening in the minds of Israel as well. They are doubting. They are questioning. They don't believe or trust that Hashem is who he says he is. They're succumbing to the serpent. And so Hashem gives them to the serpent. He forces them to look at the serpent, to take it in. This is what you are. This is who you are. You are the serpent. And so when we turn our attention to the cross, we find our Messiah hung by nails in shame, his mortal flesh perishing. And in this moment, a message is being proclaimed to humanity. Look at this man. Look on his shame. Look at him. Look at him, and just as Israel in the wilderness with the serpent recognize that this is your own failure, this is your nature. See yourself in him strung up there. Find yourself in his death, in his failed flesh, in his shame laid bare for all to see. Yeshua in that moment becomes a symbol to all humanity. You are the serpent, and this is what you deserve. Look at him. Do not turn your eyes away. Let the image of his torn flesh haunt you and follow you. Let it always be a reminder of who you are. When you doubt God, when you doubt his word, this is who you are. The serpent on the pole isn't a symbol to be worshipped, but in the same way the cross is not a symbol to be worshipped. It is a revelation of our faults. It's a revelation of our sin. Stare at it. Acknowledge it. Identify with it. And be saved. Here in the midst of a major failure, here on the backside of the wilderness, we find mixed in a measure of growth as well. Israel acknowledged their sin. They sought out Moses and asked for his intercession. They knew that they had failed in allowing doubt to enter their minds, and so they sought forgiveness. Continuing on, Israel then gets back on the road, and here at the end of the chapter we read of a series of stops that Israel took, and nestled among these stories is a series of sayings. And these sayings, they don't seem to mean anything. And this is complicated by some of our translations. Let's take the first saying, beginning in Numbers 14. Numbers 21, 14 through 15. Therefore it is said in the book of the battles of Hashem, 
Wahev and Sufa, the Wadi Arnon, and the slope of the Wadi that turns aside to the dwelling of Ar, and lies on the border of Moab. What? When we read it in this translation, it seems as if the text is simply perhaps describing a geographical area. It's a call out to another source, you know, that place that's talked about in this other book. Well, this place is where they're camping at this time. And that might be the answer. But if we turn to the KJV, it translates it in this way. Wherefore it is said in the book of the wars of the Lord, what he did in the Red Sea, the word Sufa, Yam Suf is the Red Sea, and in the brooks of the Arnon, and at the streams of the brooks that goeth down to the dwelling of Ar, and lieth upon the borders of Moab. The King James translators believed that these verses were reminders of things that God had done in other areas. Perhaps a reminder that this is what happened here. God split the waters at the Red Sea. Well, God split the waters of this wadi, or a temporary stream as well. Uh, it seems as if they taught that this little aside was just a way of recounting what happened here and relating it to what happened at the Red Sea. Now, if we look to the Septuagint, it was translated by these ancient scholars in this way. Therefore, it is said in a book, a war of the Lord has set on fire Zub and the brooks of Arnon, and he has appointed brooks to cause Er to dwell, and it lies near the coasts of Moab. Now, in the Septuagint, it's not the books of the wars of Hashem. In the Septuagint, it's simply a book that states that the wars of the Lord have done these things. And what things were those? Well, they set fire to Zub and the brooks of the Arnon, and he appointed these brooks or wadis to cause Ur to dwell near the coast of Moab. And in every English translation that I checked, I, didn't, I can't check them all, the text then continues on, and the next proverb that's related is completely disconnected from the first. In verse 16, And from there they went on to Be'er, which is the well where Hashem said to Moshe, Gather the people and let me give them water. The problem here is that the words for they went or they traveled or whatever your translation adds here, it's missing in the Hebrew. But in the ancient translations, these are not separate events that are disconnected by a bit of travel. In the Septuagint and both Targum Pseudo-Jonathan and Targum Onkelos, these events are connected. Now remember that Targums, they're not translations. They're not strict translations, I should say. But rather, they're commentaries that attempt to fill in the gaps of what the Hebrews is not saying. It's like... It's like Ezra in the book of Nehemiah, as he read the Torah, he gave a sense of what he was reading. So too the Targums attempt to do that when something confusing comes along. They attempt to give the sense of what's being read. And so, first, Targum Pseudo-Jonathan. Probably somewhere late 2nd century is when this Targum was first compiled. And it says, Therefore it is said in the book of the law, where are recorded the wars of the Lord. Et and Heb, who had been smitten with the blast of leprosy and had been banished beyond the confines of the camp, made known to Israel that Edom and Moab were concealed among the mountains in ambush to destroy the people of the house of Israel. But the Lord of the world made a sign to the mountains, which pressed one to another so that they died, and their blood flowed through a valley on the brink of Arnon, 
a valley adjoining Arnon, and the effusion of the streams of their blood flowed to the inhabitations of Nechait, which were, however, delivered from this destruction, because they had not been in the council. And behold, it was unto the confine of Moab, and from thence was given to them, the Israelites, the living well, the well concerning which the Lord said to Moses, Assemble the people and give them water. Then behold, Israel sang the thanksgiving of this song at the time when that well which had been in the wilderness was restored to them through the merit of Miriam. Spring up, O well, spring up, O well, sang they to it, and it sprang up, the well which the fathers of the world, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, digged. The princes who were of old digged it. The chiefs of the people, Moses and Aaron, the scribes of Israel, found it with their rods, and from the desert it was given to them as a gift. That's a lot more there, right? Well, as we can see, Pseudo-Jonathan, he adds a lot to this short passage. And this work connects these two phrases that are disconnected in most English translations. The events at the wadi and the well that's being dug are the same event. There is no traveling from one place to the other. So let's look at Targum Onclos and see what it has to say about this passage. Targum Onclos, written probably 1st century BC, approximately, uh, maybe as early as 250 BC, has this to say about this passage. Wherefore it is said in the books of the wars, that which the Lord did by the Sea of Suf, the Red Sea, and the great deeds which he wrought by the torrents of Arnon, and the flowing of the streams which leads toward Lachait, and are joined at the confine of Moab, and from thence was given to them the well, which is where the Lord spake to Moshe, Gather the people together, and I will give them water. Therefore sang Israel this song, Spring up, O well, sing ye unto it, the well which the princes digged, and the chiefs of the people cut it, the scribes with their staves. It was given to them in the wilderness, and from the time that it was given to the time it descended with them to the rivers, and from the rivers it went up with them to the height, and from the height to the vale, which is in the fields of Moab, at the head of Ramathah, which looketh toward Bethjeshimon. Again, this event that is recorded in the book of the wars of Hashem, it's connected to the saying about the waters that are brought forth by the leaders of Israel. According to every ancient translation or commentary, these are not separate events that are separated by some travel. These are the same events. They're the beginning of the wars of Israel, as great and miraculous deeds are done on behalf of Israel to protect them from the armies that would seek to destroy them while they traveled. And in Targum Onclos, we see a really cool picture of what might have happened with the well that's described in verse 17 through 18. Now, do you remember back to the last lesson I spoke of the tradition in Judaism that the rock that was split at Horeb followed Israel through the wilderness, and that well was called the well of Miriam because she was the one who would sing to it to get it flowing. And so Moses, when he was commanded to speak to the rock to get it to flow, instead he struck the rock and the water flowed. But if we look to the clues of this chapter, the well did not follow them as they set out from Kadesh Barnea. The complaint of the people on the way was that there was no water to drink. How could this be if the well followed them through the wilderness, unless it didn't at this point? They not only left behind the land of promise when they walked away from Canaan, they left behind the well that had provided water for them for so many decades. When we see this, we can understand that the frustration of Israel with their predicament of being forced to go around is increased by that much more. 
Now it's not only walking away from the land and eating only manna, and some of their number being captured by enemies, but the water that had been faithful to follow them ceased to follow as they left. They woke up that first morning expecting it to be there, and it wasn't. And the day after, and the day after, and on and on. The water in their skins running out, no sign of where more was to come from, hoping that God would deliver them and not seeing his deliverance. No wonder they complained about dying out there in the wilderness. In every aspect of their journey, it looked as if they had been abandoned. And in Targum Onclos, perhaps we get the rest of the story. Just after this miraculous salvation of Israel in this place, whatever it was in this in this translation, Hashem came to Moses and told him to gather the people together and he would give them water. And so the people gathered, and that failure of Moses was rectified. Not by Moses speaking to the rock, but rather by the entire congregation lifting up their voices and singing the song of Miriam. Spring up, O well, sing to it. And the well of Miriam was returned to the people. The water flowed once again, and it followed Israel through the wilderness until they camped at Shittim. Now the question comes, which is it? Do our modern translators have it right? That that the first aside speaks only of the place where Israel dwelt, and then they moved, and then something else about a well? Or perhaps there's a reference to what happened at the Red Sea generations ago, but then they moved, and then something about a well. The fact is that none of the modern translations of this part of Numbers 21 is very clear on the meaning, and the fact is that neither is the Hebrew. Why is that? Because the ancient writings, the way that you could fill in a story without telling the story, was to reference another work. We see this constantly, not just throughout Scripture, but specifically in the New Testament. When they refer to Old Testament passages, the intention is to get you to read the entire passage. Not to just look at that one verse in isolation, but to consider everything that the passage they're referring to speaks about. In the same way, this section of Numbers speaks of another book in which these events were recorded. Perhaps Onkelos or Jonathan or whoever wrote these had access to that other book. We don't. Maybe they just made it up. I don't know. But every ancient translation or commentary connects these sayings. They create a picture, a series of events. Israel's without hope and is suffering a form of defeat after the event with the fiery serpents. Many lives were spared, but only through a confusing act of God. But as they continued their travel, God once again established his hedge of protection around Israel, and he began to fight for them and to provide for them once again. A faith-building exercise to increase their trust in him to the second generation. And perhaps it's like Targum Pseudo-Jonathan recounts. Perhaps an army encamped against Israel to attack them on their way, and Hashem caused the mountains to clap together and crush the army that threatened them. And then he provided for their thirst, and in doing so he taught them that they all have the power to call on him for their salvation. It doesn't require Moses. It doesn't require Aaron. It requires simply that you lift up your voice and sing, and you practice faith in your speech. 
If we go with the modern understanding, then there's not a whole lot to learn here, only more confusion added on top of previous confusion of the bronze serpent. But if we go with the ancient understanding, then we see a series of events that mirrors Israel passing through the sea and coming to Mount Sinai. Some in Israel are in slavery, but rather than signs and wonders, this time faithful men free them from their oppressors. They travel for a time and are without food and without water, and they cry out and they cast accusations. Then an aggressor attacks, and the weak and the weary of Israel are killed. And the aggressor of the serpents we find an enemy that, similar to Amalek, we are to actively seek to destroy from our midst. And then Israel is delivered from the army that chases them, this time not through walls of water crashing together and drowning the oppressors, but this time rather through walls of rock crashing together and burying the enemy alive. And then a well is provided, the well of Miriam, a well that follows Israel throughout the remainder of their journey. So which is correct? I would flip the question. Who cares what's the correct flow of history? We don't have the quoted source material, and there's zero physical evidence at this point. We either have a confusing series of disconnected events, their only connection being that they occurred to Israel while they traveled, but no idea what they possibly mean. Or we have a meaningful story that speaks on the themes of the wilderness and God's faithfulness to come through and provide. I would ask instead, which story builds your faith more? Which story seems to describe the process of coming out of the wilderness more accurately? And then, perhaps, hold both loosely in your mind. Don't settle on just one. Allow both to be possibilities. Well, as Israel gets near to the end of their journeys, the fighting does indeed begin. This nation of slaves turned warriors is tested for the very first time as a whole. Sihon, the king of Ammon, refuses to allow Israel to pass through his land. But unlike with Edom, Hashem does not hold them back. The leash is taken off and Israel goes to war. And they find victory. They defeat Sihon, and another proverb is related, but this time we have a context for what the proverb means. Then Israel turns toward Bashan, the land next to the Jordan, and they face down Og, the king of Bashan, and his armies. Now in Deuteronomy we read that Og had a large iron bed, and we're supposed to take from this reference that Og was indeed a giant, a powerful man who seemed impossible to defeat, a man similar to what Israel was about to wade into in Canaan, their first test against desperate odds. And Hashem assures Israel, Do not fear. I have given him to you. And Israel goes to battle and wins. So ends the travels of Israel through the wilderness on their journey to Canaan. In the very first verse of chapter 22, we read that Israel reaches Shittim, the plains of Moab on the east side of the Jordan, their final stop in this journey. Their walk is over. The journey seems complete, but the wilderness experience is not yet done. There are still more challenges that await Israel. But for those, we'll have to wait until next week. So let's look back over this chapter and put it all together before we finish for the day. In the beginning of the chapter, things looked hopeless. Everything was going wrong and circumstances were actively working against them. 
a final test of desire as they began to make their long and meandering journey to the staging area that was set for them on the east side of the Jordan. Their leaders were dying. The easiest path was denied to them. Their camp was attacked and some were enslaved. Their water source that had been so faithful until recently was removed. Things looked hopeless and terrible. They were uncomfortable and desperate. And Israel failed to continue in faith because of every circumstance turning against them. And admit it, you would do the same. I know that I have. And so Hashem, for a time, takes away his hand of protection to reveal that he was not gone. He had been there all along, protecting them from an enemy that surrounded them. And yet when Israel began to fall to this enemy, Hashem then provides a means of salvation, a symbol of their own treachery and wickedness. And this symbol, this recognition of who they were, brought life. It did not drive away the serpents. Instead, it brought life to all who were bitten by the serpent. And as Israel then continued to their travels, they began to see God move again. The miracles of the beginning being enacted in their midst once again, their needs being met fully. And when it came time to finally face down those who stood in their way, Israel was able to act in faith and defeat the enemies. Enemies that looked impossible. This story, it's a mixed bag. It's defeat and victory all mixed up together as is so common in human experience. But the progression is clear. Israel, while looking to their own means and looking to their own comfort, was incapable of doing what was expected of them. They lost hope and became impatient. But once they recognized their own faithlessness and repented of it, a way was made to reach the place that Hashem had for them and they began to experience victory upon victory. And that is the key to victory in the impossible. Repentance and faith. Looking to the symbol of our Savior, a symbol of who we are as He hung upon the cross, and a symbol of who we can be as He was raised from the dead. In these ideals there is victory to be found in the midst of defeat. And with these ideals, we can continue to move forward as we seek life. Deresh Chai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. The music was provided by the Exodus Road Band. Check them out on iTunes or ExodusRoadBand.com. We'll see you again next time as we dare as we seek life. Shalom.